You're now listening to episode 46 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli here today with Tina, Tracy, and Eileen from Savvy Mortgage Lending to discuss the different types of debt products available to residential borrowers in the one to four unit space, the factors that impact your lendability, how lenders look at depreciation, tips to increase your lendability, and more. With April 15th officially behind you, it's never been a better time to start tax planning for 2019 and the years ahead. Our Tax Strategy Foundation Engagement is a multiple call series that walks you through the tax strategies you'll need to reduce your tax bills. At the end of the series, we'll give you a tax strategy blueprint that summarizes each strategy and what actions you'll need to take to implement them. And if you need assistance throughout the year, our team is there to help you every step of the way. There's no need to pay more taxes than necessary. Head over to therealestatecpa.com and fill out the form on the Become a Client page to get started today. And without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. Can you tell us a little about what Savvy Mortgage Lending does and the clientele and markets that you serve? Yeah, we're a small independent mortgage brokerage. We are a company of four loan originators, and we uh, do residential mortgage loans in the entire state of Florida. We work with first-time home buyers, self-employed borrowers, investors, just about anyone. Okay, so would you be able to walk us through a little bit about the different types of debt products that are available to investors in the one to four unit space or the residential space? So there are two sides that we service as far as the one to four lending residential units. We have a conventional side. With that, you can only have 10 properties with mortgages. And we have what I'm gonna call our non-QM or our private lenders that will do investment properties, one to four units, even even higher actually, with uh, no income requirements and they're unlimited properties that you can own. It's almost like private money lending, essentially you're just acting as the broker in that case, is that? We are the broker and it's, uh, there's some pretty good sized banks. So I hate to call it all private money, but there are some pretty good sized banks that are doing these, what we're going to call non-QM loans. So a lot of our clients, you know, one of the questions they always ask us is how they can improve their lendability. So in other words, their eligibility for a loan. Uh, Would you be able to talk a little about the factors you look at when you evaluate the borrower? Maybe that source of income, income level, debt to income ratio, those types of things. Yeah, we we look at different um, debt-to-income ratios depending on the loans that they're doing, uh, depending on the type of property they're buying. You know, FHA allows for a higher debt-to-income ratio than a conventional loan. VA allows for a higher debt-to-income ratio than, than either one of those. And so we do offer all of those options. We do look at income. We're going to look at self-employed borrower income. We're going to look at W-2 income. We're going to look at rental income. We're going to look at retirement income. We can do asset depletion to qualify them if they have a large amount of uh, liquid assets. So we look at all of those different types of income when we're trying to qualify a borrower. Also, on that's pretty much the conventional side of it. On the non-QM side, 
we don't have any income requirements. They basically qualify the property off of what we're going to call a debt service coverage ratio. So the investor doesn't provide us any income documents. We do prove assets, but they basically take either what the property is currently being leased for or what the appraiser deems to be the average rent for the area, the lower of the two, and then the mortgage principal and interest, taxes and insurance, and any HOA fees that may be on the, the property would need to be covered by that rental, if that makes sense to you. So it's... That absolutely does. So it sounds like on the QM side of things, the private side of things, there is no... They're not really looking so much at the borrower it's themselves. You're more or less looking at the property and what the property can sustain. That is correct. And when it comes to the other side, the traditional side of things... Um, when it comes to being self-employed or working as W-2, a lot of times I hear things from clients that sometimes the W-2 is stronger or, or is perceived as stronger than the self-employed side of things. So I don't know how you look at that. I wouldn't say that the W-2 is stronger. I would say it's a little harder to analyze self-employed income sometimes uh, because as we all know, when you're self-employed and you're, you're, you're making money, you do have deductions and expenses and and uh, and it does reduce your your qualifying income, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not a strong borrower. So we we're going to look at both of those. And uh, W two is a little easier because their income is their income, um, and and that's what we're using to qualify them. But it, but we we pre approve self employed borrowers all the time, and it's just a matter of what we can use for qualifying income in that case. And Eileen may want to talk to that too. She's, um, you know, she she's kind of the mastermind behind analyzing tax returns. Um, going back to underwriting, how a lender looks at a, a borrower's qualifications. If they're self-employed, um, they tend to feel that those are a higher risk category, um, just on based on past history. So the on a, the self-employed borrower needs to provide more documentation than the W two borrower. That documentation is reviewed and analyzed, and we present it to the underwriter in a favorable light. Would you say that the time of the length of time the self-employed person is in business is that a factor that you guys take into consideration? Well, yeah. Uh, depending on the particular loan program, um, sometimes we need to go back two years. Sometimes we only need to go back one year. Um, automated underwriting will tell us if we need two years' documents, one year's documents, and, and typically, if they've been in business more than four or five years we'll get the one-year finding. So we just have to do the one year of history. Got it, got it. And when it comes to like, say you have someone who has an S corporation, they have sometimes have a W-2 wage and then the distribution and then like then they have their net income. So it's like the two separate sources. Do you guys look at it as a combination of the whole or how do you guys look at that? No, we do. We, we look at it all. We, we, they provide us with their W-2s, with their two-year tax returns. Um, we have a, a, a format or an actual form that we, we fill in and um, it starts with the W-2 income and then it goes down into the actual uh, business return and we can add back for uh, depreciation, we can add back for uh, one-time losses that are not recurring, we can add back amortization that might be paid. Um, we do have to deduct for meals. Um, if one takes meal expenses, um, that's considered uh, deducted against their income when it comes to calculating income for mortgage qualifying. 
Got it. Makes sense. Um, would you say that any of these factors, do they have any impact on the interest rate? Or is there any one factor that maybe weights that the factor of the interest rate that the borrower gets? Or is it just a combination of them all that kind of, you know, that, that states the interest rate at the end of the day? Yeah, I think rates here in Canada can speak better on that. They're the rate people. I'm more the document person. Got it. I would say that from a conventional standpoint or, you know, a, a traditional type of mortgage where W-2 income versus self-employed income is not going to affect the interest rate whatsoever. What does affect the rate on our end is property type, occupancy type, and loan to value and credit score. With the investor type loans that Tina um, excels at, she can kind of speak to that a little bit more. So I'm going to let, let her speak. Yeah, on the non-QM side, when you're looking at what rate, they're basically going off of credit score, loan to value, and the investor experience. There are two types. There's basically a rental loan, and then what we're going to call a fix and flip, if there's somebody looking to just um, buy a property and rehab. So they're looking more on the experience of the investor and credit score are the two biggest factors and your loan to value. Um, the three biggest factors as far as what's going to determine your rate, whether you're at a six and a half rate or a 10 and a half rate, it's going to determine your rate endpoints. How do you assess investor experience? How many deals they have completed within the last 24 months. So if there are how many rentals maybe they currently own, or if we're talking about a fix and flip, how many fix and flips they have completed in the last 24 months. So they'll take a look at the big picture. If maybe it was dry and there's a huge experience, it's maybe, you know, it's not rocket science, but the, the main 20, the most recent 24 months are the, what carries the most weight. Do you look at the like size of rentals, different types of rental? Is like, is there a difference between single family versus a three unit property in terms of investor experience? None, none whatsoever. It yeah. doesn't count if it's just because it's a, a four unit property. It doesn't count as for investment. If that if that's what you mean, it's still one unit. Got it. And, and it, are you looking at like like let's say I buy fifteen properties twenty five months ago. Does that count as zero deals for me? Or do you look at my current portfolio and you're saying 15 properties is experienced or middle account? Yeah, are you holding them for rental? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They would count. So if you are holding rentals, we're going to count how many rentals you are currently holding and how many fix and flips you've been involved with. Are there certain thresholds in terms of number of rentals or number of deals? Or is it kind of dependent on... Yeah, some, and it, and it can vary, but usually if it's between zero and four, you're going to be in the lower tier after you move up from, you know, maybe let's say four to eight and then eight and above. So usually zero to four, you're getting your feet wet and you're going to be in the higher rate zone. Why over the last 24 months and not like the last 10 years? That's a great question. They want to know, they're, they're loaning you money now, not three years ago. Um, they want to know what you're doing now and your, your experience now. I'm just thinking in terms of like a really experienced investor that has like decades under their belt and for whatever reason, they've offloaded all their portfolio. Now they're getting back into it. So you, so you wouldn't factor that in. It was, it's just really, what are you doing kind of like within that last 24 month window? 
Yeah, well, no, I would definitely present it to the lender. Absolutely. Um, I've had a few people that have had just maybe one recently under their belt, and we've proven their previous history. You know, it, again, it, this is not as firm as conventional guidelines, so it's definitely up to the lender and what, you know, and, and what they see. And probably along with the credit history, so it'll, you know, be combined. I just wanted to add on that. Uh, the reason for the 24 months is from an underwriting perspective, the most recent 24 month history is the best indicator of what you can assume will happen moving forward. So if someone over the past 24 months has had responsible usage of credit and has had responsible or, or successful fix uh, and flips, the indication is you can assume that moving forward, it will continue to behave that way. They don't go back past the years. That just seems to be like a rule of thumb. Like, let's look at what they did most recently. That's the best indicator moving forward. That is like fascinating to me. I just think of like the stock market, right? Like if you if you were doing this in 2008 and you were looking back two years and you're like, that's a good indicator of what's going to happen going forward. And then like six months later, it all tanks and your your wealth is gone. That That's interesting. So, so it's all kind of like a guideline that's put in place. They think that the last 24 months, is that how like general credit scores work too? They're kind of looking at that. Uh, so I know that don't they have like a longer window? Well, uh, for uh, negative credit history, they do go back. They look back seven years, sometimes okay. 10 years. Okay. Um, but still, the most recent 24 months usually indicates that whether it is risk is high or risk is low. If that's you've been laid on your mortgage in the past 12 months, that's going to be a tough one to explain. If you've been laid on a credit card only one time in the last 12 months, not as big of a problem. Huh. So most recent credit history typically drives underwriting um, from their perspective. They're always assessing risk, risk for the investor. Yeah, yeah, you know what? I think that makes sense because at the end of the day, it's about habits in some way, shape, or form, right? And, you know, your habits probably are going to be similar in the last 24 months than they would be over the last 10 years. And, right. you know, one of my buddies kind of unrelated to this, but it kind of makes sense is he told me when he does peer-to-peer lending, he looks at their payment history. And the people who have no default payments over a certain period of time usually indicate that that trend will continue. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine that, you know, banks kind of, or, you know, mortgage brokers or private money lenders look at that the same way and say, hey, look, you know, if this person has a, a strong record of uh, paying on time, that's going to continue going forward. So that kind of makes sense to me. Yeah, definitely. So when it comes to the property level stuff, I know Tina had mentioned before that for the conventional loans, you're looking at the borrower and with the non-conventional loans, you're looking at the property level, Right. Um, and seeing how much income the property uh, derives, how much expenses that has, what the net income is. Is there any other factors at that property level that you use to determine whether or not it, that you can lend to that person? I'm going to answer uh, what I believe, to, <laughs> if I'm hearing your question correctly. The property itself, we're going to look at whether it's a single family home or a condo, investment property versus primary, second home versus uh, primary. You know, those are the kinds of things that the property itself can affect the qualifying and the the loan. But um, as far as, if I understand correctly, as far as the property, well, maybe I need a, a, a better definition of property level when you say that. Okay, so I mean, I guess, I guess when say say hey, I have a rental property or a potential rental property rather, and I'm looking to get a loan on it, and I come to you and I present the property. Is there anything you look at for the property to determine, hey, look, you know, I can lend 
to this person based on the property itself. And I know before Tina kind of went a little bit into it on the QM side, how it's pretty much all property driven based off the income, the income to debt ratio. Is there any other factors outside of strictly the, the income and expenses that, or, or the income to debt ratio that you would look at? Yeah, I mean, I would say it really just depends on the loan that we are going through on the QM side, on the regular side, um, because FHA is going to require that the property be in good shape. Uh, the VA loan is going to require that the property be in good shape and structurally sound for the veteran. Conventional, you can you can get around some of that uh, with you know some issues like rotted wood or termites. You can sometimes get through underwriting with those issues because they don't really look at them. But all in all, the, the property has to basically uh, be able to carry itself in whatever fashion uh, the person's buying it in. If it's a primary home, it needs to be livable. Uh, if it's an investment property, it needs to be able to make money. Um, those are the things that I would say is property driven. I'm, I'm going to add into that as well. So, for instance, on the conventional side, the, the appraiser is going to give it a condition level. and We have one through six. If the condition level, you know, one being best, six being worse. If the condition level warrants repairs, then you may have to take care of some of the repairs on the conventional side. However, on the non-QM side, let's say, for instance, we have a property and it is it needs a lot of rehab and we're doing that fix and flip rehab loan, they will go down to a condition six as long as they are controlling the rehab. They're not doing the rehab, but they're controlling the money and the funds out for the rehab. So on the conventional side, if you had that property that was in a C6 level, there's no way it's going to go through underwriting. You're going to be at least at a three or four, depending upon repairs that the appraiser deemed necessary. On the non-QM side, if we're doing that rehab loan with the purchase, they can go all the way down to C6. Is that kind of answer? Maybe? Yeah. So when you say control the money, do you mean controlling the frequency of the distribution? So say, for instance, we're going to give you X amount of dollars to complete phase one of the rehab. Then we're going to give you the next phase of money at, after phase one is complete. Is that kind of where yes. you're going with that? Okay. Yes. Got it. Yes. So the non-QM on the, um, on the, the non-QM, the investor picks and flips, they will loan you a percentage of the purchase price as well as a percentage of the rehab cost. Your loan is based on the purchase price and your rehab. Got it. So they include the rehab cost in with the, the entire loan? Yes. Got it. Very good. So let's switch gears a bit and talk about the rental side. Um, I know that lenders add back depreciation. This is a common question that we get all the time from our clients. So when it comes to depreciation, first, I guess let's explain what depreciation is. We've got a non-cash expense. It's really kind of there to track the deterioration of the property over time. And it's really just a paper loss for tax purposes. If I have a $10,000 depreciation expense, it doesn't mean that I spent $10,000. It just means that that's the expense that I get to take that year, just purely for uh, paper purposes in most cases. So when it comes to depreciation, what do you add back? What do you look for? And then I have some questions about bonus depreciation as well. Depreciation is one of the few that's allowed back. It, it, and we look at the tax at the Schedule E and see what's been reported for this most recent tax year and then the year before. Um, I don't know if there's a specific formula that CPAs use because sometimes to me it seems like a random number, but as long as it's been consistently taken, we are able to add it back. Got it. So you look for consistently taken depreciation. Yeah. 
tools. Yeah, there should be a history of taking a depreciation expense, and then we can go ahead and add that back. So let's say that every year I have $5,000 of depreciation expense, mm-hmm. um, and I've had this rental for, let's just call it three years. And, and you see that $5,000 every year. Let's say that this year I do some repairs, I do some rehab work, but the type of rehab work that I do is uh, I capitalize the cost. So I'm not writing them off as a repair on mm-hmm. Schedule E, but they qualify for 100% bonus depreciation under the 2018 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So let's call it like an additional 10,000 bucks. Let's say 10,000 bucks. I don't write it off as a repair, but let's call it personal property. So it's five-year property, mm-hmm. qualifies for 100% bonus depreciation. So this year, my total depreciation is $15,000. So I get that extra 10. Do you only add back the 5K or would you also add back that bonus depreciation? You'd actually average the two years. You'd take the 15,000 plus the five, years. average it over two years and give them that number. Interesting. Are you only ever averaging two years, like the last year and this year, or are you averaging more than that? It really depends on every tax return. It just kind of depends on how things are reported. Uh, If the overall income on the property is declining, then we would take the most recent year only. But if it's appreciating, if the income is going up from year year over year, then we average two years. Self-employed income, rental income, corporate income. If it's declining, we go with the most recent 12 months. If it's increasing, we go with two-year average. So it's relatively safe to say that if a client's doing a massive rehab, or let's actually not call it a rehab. Let's say the tenant's in there. um, They're doing some big repairs on the property while the tenant's in there. But the, the client decides to capitalize the repairs and write them off via 100% bonus depreciation because they want to increase their bankability, that would be something that would be a wise move for the client. If it's Well, that, that's really more of an advisor or CPA question. But um, you know, as far as what I look at for qualifying income, if it's reported as depreciation, we can add it back. If it's reported as expenses and maintenance, if we can prove that one-time occurrence, we don't have to hit them with that expense. But we can't necessarily give them an income uh, or, or an investment up. Interesting. Okay. So this is going down a rabbit hole. <laughs> so, some the, my world. <laughs> so some of the lenders that we work with or that we refer clients to in the past, the, the repairs, the maintenance is, is just a penalty pretty much no matter what. Mm-hmm. The way that you guys work is, and maybe this is the way that it, it should be done. I, I don't know what types of loans these folks are attending. So take that with a grain of salt, of course. But what you're saying is that if you can prove that the repair or the maintenance is a random sort of one-time event, mm-hmm. then you can just add it back. We can't necessarily add it back. We don't have to count it against the rental income. Got so it. If okay. the total rental income for the year is $25,000 and the owner, the landlord decided, I'm going to rehab that whole property. I'm going to make it look spectacular. I'll spend $20,000. That would be considered an expense. So we would drop that $25,000 rental income down by that amount. If it's a one-time expense, then we have to get a letter of explanation and perhaps a, a builder's invoice or something like that to prove this is just a one-time expense. It was optimal work that we decided to do, then we don't have to hit them with the negative. We don't have to hit them with the expense against the rental income. We can only add back property taxes, homeowner's insurance, depreciation, and I'm missing one. <laughs> mortgage interest. Thank you, mortgage interest. <laughs> I should know that one. <laughs> I, I did want to add to that as well. And I had one just very, very recently. And that one-time 
extraordinary expense has to be event related. Fine. It can't just be a rehab. You just bought it and it was dilapidated. It has to be fire, hurricane. I just had one that was turned down by a conventional underwriter hmm. for that very reason. So it had to be an event that happened to the property, not just a just bought it and it needs $20,000. Got it. Okay. Or what if you own the property and you own it for a while and the tenant like moves out and then you do a rehab, you can't add any of that or you can't not count any of that against them. There has to be like an event that you can't foresee essentially. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, I'm I'm talking about not necessarily the bonus depreciation, but I'm talking about the extraordinary, the one time extraordinary event expense. It's got to be around that event that occurred it almost sounds like a casualty loss like if there's if there's a one time yeah you have a hurricane hit your house and it knocks you know down the awning or whatever whatever the case is and you have to repair the awning that's going to be the one-time expense not because you know you were just you were just sitting there and the awning broke and you had to fix it so that's kind of, is that is that kind of accurate correct that's interesting i didn't know that i'm glad glad we're doing this podcast <laughs> So overall, you know, is there any tips you guys have for borrowers out there to increase their lendability, either, you know, whether, whether that be on the traditional side or the QM side? I would say on the conventional side, uh, FHA side, VA side, you want to keep your credit score up, preferably, definitely above 620. Uh, anything above 700 is going to get you your best interest rate. You want to keep your debt-to-income ratio low. You want to keep your credit card utilization low. They usually say about 30% of the overall credit limit that you've got. That's what you want to utilize, that or less. So that's what I would say on my end of things uh, that we look at to try to encourage people to get the best rate and the, the best uh, situation for them You know, by keeping their credit score where it needs to be. Tina may have a different set of rules for her her people, her investors. Um, credit score is still the same above 620. And of course, 700 is going to still carry a little bit better of a rate. Since this one is property driven and asset driven, um, they get a little wiggy when investors are moving money from account to account, which I know sometimes, not sometimes, they like to do. Um, so keeping money... I, I guess not transferring from account to account at least two months before you're going to do a deal just causes a little uneasiness. I would guess you could say with the underwriters and I'm Eileen sure can elaborate to that. Well, I've never underwritten non QM products or invested products like the, what you're commenting on, but um, uh, an underwriter wants to get a feel that the person is stable, that there's not a lot of, movement of assets, movement of funds, um, as well as a good credit history. So uh, yeah, I would agree with you to an extent. All right. So it sounds like credit history is definitely a big one. I want to have it above 620, 700 or above is ideal. If you're going on the QM side or non-QM side, the, the non-traditional side, I uh, want to make sure that you're keeping your assets in the same bank accounts, not making any crazy movements uh, a few months prior to the loans. You know, sometimes we do get questions from our clients in terms of, oh, I have so many properties. Will this affect my lendability? And I, and I know we might have touched on that briefly throughout this, but do you see any, any instances where someone has too many properties that makes them a liability? And I know that we have the 10 conventional loan max, but outside of that, is that ever a concern for someone who's either underwriting or, or a potential lender looking to, to lend to somebody? 
Um, it's it's not on the non-QM side. As long as they're rented, um, it could look like a liability if they don't have current leases on some of those properties. But they will do. Um, they will allow the investor to have unlimited properties on the the non-QM side. So, so I guess I could have, say, for instance, I could have 40 properties, 10 of them with traditional debt, the limits. And then um, as long as my other properties, my other 30 or, or, or my properties rather, are like producing well, they're, they're producing income and it's not, and it doesn't look like I'm a risk, uh, like a going concern type of risk, then that's acceptable. It's not going to be, okay, well, just because you have 40 properties, you're, you're a risk in and of itself. Correct. And again, Keep in mind on this type of loan, they're basing the property debt service qualifying itself. So their risk is covering what you're borrowing. I mean, the the property is covering the payment. It's basically debt service covering itself. Got it. Got it. So we have uh, one question we always ask every guest who we have come on the show. And that is your favorite piece of tech that you're currently using within your business. That's a hard hard question. Um, I'm going to say my favorite piece of technology is my mortgage app. Uh, it's on the phone. I can share it to anybody. Um, people can pull it up. They can do a pre-qual request. They can look at what the rates are doing currently. They can. They, there's a mortgage calculator. People can run it. Um, that's probably my favorite piece of technology right now. Sounds like an important one if you're going to be getting a, if someone's going to be getting a lot of loans or or doing deals frequently. Also, we also have, which is probably my favorite, is we have the online application. Borrowers can go in there. They can link all of their um, assets, W-2s, income, all that directly to the application. And where a lot of them don't like to do that, I think is more, we start lending to more and more millennials. I think it will catch on more, but it can totally go automated for them. Um, So much stuff is going online. It's a matter of time before everything is online. My tech, even though it's kind of multiple at this point, my favorite thing to use is a scanner. For me to be able to scan documents, store them electronically, and shred, yeah, I think it's the best invention ever. <laughs> I'd have to agree. Scanners are great. I actually don't have one, and I could tell you uh, the fact that I don't have one right now, it does become a pain uh, because it is so easy. But actually, to add to that, you can actually do that with your cell phone these days. Mm-hmm. There's like yeah. scanner applications, which is great. You just take the picture and you like drag the image, like the little box that just takes it very, very good. And especially for just keeping documents uh, electronically, not have to keep up a shoebox yeah. full of documents. And they're forever in great quality. Uh, there's an app that I use a lot and I recommend to our clients a lot. It's called Cam Scanner. And it allows you to scan a document, turn it into a PDF and email it right to me all in one or one or two steps. So it's been a lifesaver for us a lot of times with clients who don't have scanners. Awesome. Sounds like some awesome pieces of tech. Is there anything else, uh, any other pieces of advice you'd have for our for our audience before we wrap up for today? Your bills on time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would probably agree with that. Pay your bills on time. Keep your debt to income ratio down. Your utilization down. Uh, try to get that credit score up. I mean, you can do it. You, we can get you a loan at six twenty, but you're going to pay the price and the interest rate and. If you ever need advice, I mean, you, you guys, you know, anyone can call us and we can go over their credit with them and help them determine what they need to do to get that that score increased. All right. So thank you again for coming on the show. Um, we're going to call it a day. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at 
with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.